This is Salt and Spine. Just because you think, you know, everything exists already, like someone's got to have done this, but I really couldn't find anything. Yeah, I thought I'll be the one to try to make this, make these recipes. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in for a special episode. It's the 2022 Baking Month. All of December, we're celebrating some of the year's best baking books with a handful of author interviews, dozens of featured recipes, excerpts, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to our Substack to get it all. Today's Baking Month guest is Brian Levy. Now, Brian studied architecture at Yale before launching into a career as a seasoned pastry chef, having worked at Michelin-starred Babo in New York City. His first cookbook, Good and Sweet, A New Way to Bake with Naturally Sweet Ingredients, has been called a game-changing collection of desserts by celebrated author Alice Medrich. In the book, Brian eschews processed sugar and common substitutes like maple syrup, opting instead to let pure fruits and other whole ingredients naturally sweeten and enliven his recipes. Brian joined us at our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great name. Yes. Thrilled to have you and to talk about your book, Good and Sweet, A New Way to Bake with Naturally Sweet Ingredients. Um, but we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are today. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and the relationship you had with food as you were growing up? Well, I grew up in Connecticut mm-hmm. until sometime in middle school. I moved okay. to Florida and okay. I was there till I graduated high school. And food-wise, there was always pretty good homemade dinners. My mom was into healthy eating. Okay. More when when my sister and I were little kids, she was more like making everything from scratch and uh, eventually she was working a lot more and uh, sure. that changed a little but sure. uh, but we always had, you know, homemade dinner and I guess I had the like classic um, kind of cliche experience of going to France when I was 15. I went on a high school trip for a month um, to France. And Mm -hmm. that's when I was really just like fell in love with trying new foods, I guess. Sure. I mean, I remember the first thing I had there was a kinder egg from a gas station Uh, and and i asked for it in french and i was really excited just about all of it (laughs) merci Uh, beaucoup for the kinder egg (laughs) i love it and you write in the book too about discovering food network and cookbooks is that is that pre this french trip um around the same time probably around the same time i was always watching martha stewart and Uh then there was like the david rosengarten and sarah moulton and two fat ladies yeah i just i love yeah. the two fat ladies I yeah i love that show it's a great show they were and fun. then now when i'm like telling people about it i always have to be sure they they know what i'm talking about it's the, it's the title it's of the a t- show <laughs> right it's the title yeah <laughs> yes but uh yeah i was i was always kind of falling asleep to those shows in high school and uh-huh. trying things out on the weekends yeah you you start you know trying things out and you're taking an interest in that and then you go off to college. What, what did you study in college? Mm, journalism. Journalism, same. And so you, you write in the book about be determined to work at Gourmet Magazine. So at that point, you know, in college, you're, you're thinking about food as a career to some extent, or it's just like that felt like the right job for you? Well, it was kind of, I had been doing some, like my last semester of college, I was doing some public relations work. So uh-huh. I had been exposed to magazines and I started 
obviously I honed in on, on gourmet and I got an interview there and then I became obsessed with getting a job there and yeah. I didn't, I didn't. So yes. I thought that it would, yeah. I thought it would be a good thing for my resume to get kitchen experience. So I ended up getting an internship at a kitchen in, uh, France, like at a little bistro outside of Paris. Okay. And then when I came back to New York, I just needed to get whatever job I could. So I had this office job, but I started contacting pastry chefs around Manhattan to see if I could intern for them. And eventually Gina De Palma at Babo mm -hmm. let me start coming in on nights and weekends. And I got a full-time job there when, when one of the pastry cooks quit. So yeah. And how long were you there? About two years two in years. total. Okay. So working in pastry and then you decide, I think after a couple of years there to go back to Europe, right. And spend some time and yeah. on farms. Yeah. I wanted to kind of get out of the kitchen for a while, but also, yeah, have some travel experience and get close to ingredients that I wanted to focus on, like chestnuts and almonds and honey uh -huh. and olive oil. And I got to get pretty close to all of those things doing woofing, which, right. if you know what that is, Ad. volunteering on farms. It's an acronym. Yeah, it's, it's willing organic workers farming. on organic farms. Yeah, I think. Uh -huh. And you basically just pay for listings of people around the world who will give you room and board in exchange for working on their property, whatever, right. Right. whatever kind of property they have. There are different, they're varying levels of like legitimacy of <laughs> farms. But, yeah, sure. Um, that was a great experience. And then I was cooking for families after that for about a year while I was applying to architecture school. <laughs> yeah. So then, yeah, then, you know, you spend some time at, at Babo's pastry chef traveling Europe and then you land at Yale architecture grad school. Where, where did that come from? I don't. Well, okay. So, well, the truth is I read, I'd read the God of small things by okay. Arundhati Roy, like, I don't know, some years before doing the farming stuff. Uh -huh. And it always stuck with me that her author bio said she had uh, studied architecture before becoming a novelist. And I think that just became like a romantic ideal trajectory okay. in my head. Like okay. it seems good to study architecture and then whatever, yeah. do something artsy. Yeah. And during the farming stuff and then during the farming stuff, it just started dawning on me that maybe, maybe architecture was a place to put together all of my interests. Yeah. Um, and who knows that I could end up designing nice kitchens or something. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. But anyway, I did that and I actually went to Berkeley for a year first. Oh, okay. Before. And then, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it was always, it was always sort of bringing you back to food. Like you said, maybe you can design beautiful kitchens. Like was, was that always sort of your end goal even? It was, no, there wasn't really yeah. an, okay. an, a solid end goal. Okay, sure, I just, sure. I just was hoping that it would lead me to something, which I don't know, maybe it sort of did, yeah, but yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I've talked to a number of people who have written baking books, a couple who, who studied architecture. We just recently oh, really? had Christina Cho who wrote Mooncakes and Milk Bread and she went to undergrad for architecture and then, you know, fell into to baking. So it's, it's always interesting because I think there is some overlap in the way people approach 
projects from yeah. an architecture project. About but yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, there are yeah. a lot of people that go into pastry, it seems, after doing something like science-y also. So you study architecture, <laughs> Berkeley, Yale, and then how do we get to this book? I mean, I know the book sort of starts with a mango, but but before we get to that that mango moment, how do we get from there back to this this career of yours now? Really, I just started doing it as uh, it, it did start with the mango, the idea. And I just started experimenting on the side for fun. And that's, yeah. and it's the ideas in the book that really are what drew me back to the kitchen kind of full time. Yeah. So can you talk about that mango moment? You have this really <laughs> delicious mango and, and a light bulb goes off, right? Yeah. Just eating a really sweet mango. I thought, can can I either have to be able to make a dessert out of this without adding sugar to it because it's already like perfectly sweet and I know other ingredients obviously dilute that sweetness but there there had to be a way I figured to harness the sweetness that was naturally occurring in the fruit to yeah. not have to add sugar to it and so you start experimenting and and what do you end up with yeah that so first the mango first dish. thing I did was a mango custard um, like based off of a, based off of the, just a simple custard that would like a creme brulee without the brulee part. Sure. Um, and yeah, it, it went well. It, it was good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it worked, I, right. I think is how you phrase it in the book too. Like it worked, it was good. It so worked. you, you felt like you were maybe onto something. Yeah. Yeah. Mango custard seemed like kind of the obvious thing to do as, as a first attempt. Not that there was really any obvious thing to do, but it it was the most logical thing for me because of the texture of the mango and it just seemed to lend itself to the texture of a custard sure. so so the next steps were trying things that were not textured like that uh-huh. so like cakes and right. like more solid baked things and this is just little projects that you're doing and at some point you realize i think you decide maybe I should see if there are like books I could turn to for this yeah. and realize there are really none. Right? Yeah. 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 And then I was really, yeah. So I was looking for existing recipes once uh-huh. I started getting into this and I, I mean, I looked far and wide and really found nothing. Like yeah. the closest thing I found was a couple books from the maybe early eighties that were, they used a lot of uh, fruit juice concentrate, which wasn't at all what, I wanted to do. Um, And I was really pretty shocked that just because you think everything exists already, like someone's got to have done this. Um, But I really couldn't find anything. So yeah, I thought I'll be the one to try to make this, make these recipes. Well, and I think there are authors and books and recipes that are, you know, void of cane sugar, but you wanted to produce recipes that were void of not just cane sugar, but also, you know, honey, maple syrup, some of these other, you know, quote unquote, natural sweeteners that are often used in place of that cane sugar and really just focus, you know, from a whole foods perspective on fruits and, and other ingredients that can lend that, that sweetness. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to get more, I guess, not to dog those ingredients or sure. people that use them but right. i just wanted to get more i wanted more of a challenge because really using all those ingredients that you just named it's not that difficult sure. um it's not that different from using cane sugar mm-hmm. um and the qualities of those uh ingredients aren't that different like nutritionally from cane sugar um and yeah 
imagine a world without sugar. It, a big inspiration was uh, Alice Medrich's Flavor Flowers, mm-hmm. which is a gluten-free book, but you know, the cover doesn't even, didn't even originally say gluten-free. The, the point was that, like, let's just imagine a world, or this is my interpretation at least. Sure. Let's imagine a world where wheat flour doesn't exist. What are all the other, like, amazing flowers that are out there that we're not taking full advantage of? And what are all their qualities? Right. And that's what I wanted to do, just, like, seek out all these ingredients that we're not making use of. And what can they bring to the table? Yeah. And so you, you start approaching a bunch of different recipes. Can you talk us through that process of how you started to tackle different recipes? I know you, you write that you designed a, a calculator. Say you want to make a cake. How do you, you know, approach that? Okay. So I would think about what the recipes that are conventional recipes sure. um, that I trust whether i've i've either used or researched or um you know combined recipes from multiple sources yeah um a recipe to to base things off of and then i think about what flavors are in it and what flavors are would be complementary to would make sense to put in there so let's say the pistachio cake okay so pistachios and Pears are a great combination, and pistachios and dates are a great combination. So in the pistachio cake, I have pears and fresh pears and dates um, and become part of the batter. Um, Thinking about complementary flavors and the consistency of of the final product, I would use freeze-dried fruit for something that I want to end up flaky or like a tart crust um uh-huh. tart crust that's uh made with freeze-dried blueberries and in addition to like you know having great flavor it has this really beautiful purple color yeah um and then you know i use dried fruits in all kinds of things they're pretty versatile but anything from like a cake batter to a pie filling sure you, when you're tackling something like that, so you find a conventional recipe, you know, the pistachio cake, and you want to incorporate pistachios and pears, the conventional recipe obviously probably uses cane sugar. And so when you're not using that, you're not just thinking about the sweetness that you have to replace, right? You're often thinking about, you know, cane sugar can add, you know, chewy or crunchy texture. It can be caramelized on top of certain, you know, baked items. So you're having to think about various aspects of like what sugar is actually lending to that recipe that you then have to, you know, accommodate for in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, sometimes I have to think about things in like a, um, deconstructing kind of way sure. like with caramel um there's a lot of complexity in caramel so there are a yeah. lot of uh you have to kind of um imply okay let's say yeah in order to like have that same kind of complexity so for caramel flavors i'll use maybe a combination of like milk powder miso paste dates salt maybe something like a uh, a bourbon um mm. and brown butter brown okay. butter is an yeah. important one so like caramelizing elements other than sugar so right can you talk about some of your favorite ingredients you mentioned dates um i think those make a, an appearance in many places throughout <laughs> the book right they do yeah. and i tried to i tried to kind of keep them as a last resort because i didn't okay. want it to be a date book but of course sure. they're very 
versatile because of their sweetness and that's the sweetest fruit that i use they're about two-thirds sugar Mm -hmm. um and they're also a pretty subtle um flavor that can work its way into a lot of recipes but i didn't want to fully rely on them for every recipe i wanted to always think about what is appropriate for this specific recipe so other favorite ingredients are nonfat milk powder Mm -hmm. which that was a great kind of discovery that I started using pretty early on in this process. First of all, you get the sweetness from when milk is powdered, it's, it's about half sugar. Okay. It's lactose, which is less sweet than sucrose and the other sugars, but, but it's still somewhat sweet. And it also has this, uh, malty vanilla flavor that is reminiscent of, carnation instant breakfast if you ever right. had yeah. that yeah so that wasn't just from the whatever flavors were in those instant breakfasts wasn't just from the artificial flavors that were in them it was there's also a i read in harold mcgee's nosedive book mm-hmm. his book about aromas aroma compounds um, that when milk is heated there's actually a flavor compound vanillin the main flavor compound of vanilla comes out and it, so that's not present in fresh milk, but it is in milk that's been heated to a certain extent, which okay. I think is just really cool. Other ingredients. Yeah. Um, dried white mulberries were a okay. really fun discovery during this. Now I eat them as a snack in addition to using them as an ingredient, but they're, they just have a delicious, subtle kind of figgy flavor. Okay. They're actually closely related to figs. Um, they just work great in recipes. Like I use them in the topping for a fig crumble. One fun fact about the white mulberries is yeah. the the leaves from the white mulberry tree are that's the only thing that silkworms eat. So wherever so wherever in the world that there's a silk industry, there are these white mulberry trees. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Did not know that. <laughs> Fascinating. What else? Um, then there are flowers that are sweeter, like. Uh, that are naturally sweet, like chestnut flour, right. sweet potato flour. One that um, really intrigued me is breadcrumbs. Oh, you yeah. mentioned that in the book that it's you know common in, in European baking to use breadcrumbs, but not so common in American sweet baking to use breadcrumbs. Yeah, and where I ended up using them a few times in the book is really what I, I talked about deconstructing things earlier, and that's really what I'm thinking of is chocolate and graham crackers, which are, mm-hmm. you know, store-bought ingredients that are called for often in pastry recipes. And, you know, they come already with sugar in them. So like a chocolate bar that even if it's 70%, you know, is 30% chocolate or whatever. I sure. mean, sugar. Um, and then if you're going to make a graham cracker crust, obviously there's already sugar in the store-bought graham crackers. So I deconstructed the graham crackers into whole wheat and date powder and you know spices and it works out really well as a quote unquote graham cracker crust right Uh uh-huh you you mentioned hera mcgee a couple times and some of these ingredients how much did you have to sort of dive into the science aspect of it like did did you know a fair amount of the the science from your days as a pastry chef or, or was this all sort of like new to you a lot of it was new to me I mean, of course, I, I had sure. a good base knowledge of 
technical stuff, but it had to be reworked or adjusted sure. to accommodate the ingredients that I was working into these recipes. Yeah. So, you know, I learned a ton along the way and, you know, out, I'd think, well, maybe like for instance, with the, a lot of, when I was tr- starting out with freeze dried fruit powders and they were sucking up all the liquid from the, from the recipe, Okay. I thought, well, maybe I need to coat them in fat and that'll stop it, stop them from sucking up all the moisture. Right. And so there were just discoveries and, or. And when, I, when you say that, is that the reverse creaming technique from Rose? Yeah. So, so, would, so Rose Levy Berenbaum uses the reverse creaming technique for gluten development mm-hmm. when making cakes. Um, so she coats the flour in butter before adding the other wet ingredients rather than just combining the dry with the wet. Right. Um, I had kind of a light bulb moment where I thought, well, maybe that would work for, for preventing the fiber in fruits from sucking up the moisture in a recipe. Yeah. And so even more important when you're, you're baking from your book and some, some recipes. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about the structure of the book a little bit then? So for each of the recipes, you have this, what makes it sweet sort of header subheader um, that explains a bit more about what makes it sweet it answers that question. And I found that to be the thing that I like read first when I was looking through a lot of the recipes, like I, just because I'm so curious about the process and how you've adapted a recipe um, to remove other sweeteners is that something that you have seen a lot of like positive reception to? And is that something you knew you wanted to include at the beginning or how did that sort of make its way into one of the key features of the book? Yeah, that was something I knew I wanted to include from the beginning. I had that in my proposal. Okay. Um, along with the fruit files. Yeah. Where, fruit files. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, what makes it sweet? I just, I just wanted it to be, yeah, obviously I'm fascinated by, by all these different ingredients that can, be used to make things and uh i just wanted that to be kind of clear with without having to read through the whole rest i just wanted you to know off the bat what right right (laughs) yeah and the fruit files are little sidebar pages that sort of explain different and by explain i mean like everything from like their classification within fruit families to like their sugar content and origin and how to know when when fruits are um at at their peak ripeness, like how important do you think that was to have as part of the, the understanding of how to bake with whole fruits? So for me, I, I mean, I just love a sidebar and I wanted to, in thinking of kind of the mindfulness towards ingredients aspect of my approach to these recipes, I realized that there were so many of these ingredients that I didn't even know what they looked like in their, you know, original state like uh, when they're being harvested i uh-huh. i thought a pineapple grew on uh, some kind of palm tree sure. and yeah. they you know they don't yeah they grow like in the ground yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. um and i just wanted people to including you know i want first i i was just interested in all of this and i wanted to with the botanical relationships that i include mm-hmm. that's a big inspiration for recipes for me like for ingredient combinations okay like yeah in addition to looking at like maybe flavor affinities that are in the flavor bible right i also would look at um 
you know, I had this big thing called the, my fruit family tree where it was a whole uh, relationships of grains and, sure. um, you know, anything that grew in the ground that I, that I use in desserts. Um, it's just like knowing that, that dates and coconuts are closely related or like I said, figs and mulberries. That was right. just a often sparked ideas for me. Yeah. Have you ever worked with banana peels? No. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I was reading through your book and thinking, like, maybe there will be a peel in here. But um, I made a cake a while back from Lindsay Jean Hard, who wrote a book about scraps, and it's a banana cake with, with the peels, like, pu- pureed. I think I might have watched a video of her making that. Okay, and I'm yeah. definitely, like, You should try intrigued. it. It's a, great, right, it's a great recipe. Okay. Yeah. So say you're, you know, a home baker. You pick up your book, really curious to, like, start baking in, in this fashion, where would you recommend somebody starts? Is there like a recipe that feels like a good entry point? I'd say the banana bread because it uh, uses a good combination of the different like states of fruit that I use. So it has fresh fruit in the form of bananas. Okay. It has dates, which are like a semi-dry fruit. And yeah. then it has freeze-dried bananas as well. So I like that it covers all of those. Um yeah, and how do you use the freeze-dried bananas? So they get um, pulverized uh-huh. and incorporated into the, the dry batter. ingredients. Okay. And, oh, actually, they get pulverized, and then and okay. that becomes a kind of, like, banana coconut butter okay. that gets incorporated into the recipe. Sure. Um, also has, I do the walnuts, crushed walnuts on top, which are, like, my way of bringing texture to the top that you might in a conventional recipe, just drop turbinado sugar. And in the case of these recipes, I had to come up with other ways to garnish things, but whether it's for texture or look. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Were there any recipes that you just couldn't do? You just couldn't recreate or, or any that you did, but were like a real challenge to get there? Yeah. So yeah. ones that I... Meringue is basically okay, right. something that you should, you know thinking like I'm going to push this as far as I can, but the, but I also want to accept that there are certain things that aren't going to be achievable without cane sugar. And that's, that's kind of great because it highlights that stick to sugar Uh for, um, I, I made several attempts and did come up with something that remained stable for like an hour or two, but eventually would just start melting and i and and that's when it will use cane sugar for you know if i want to make i can make an ice cream that's in this book but if i want to make a meringue that goes alongside it or whatever i'll make a meringue with sugar sure and that's a good thing yeah a balanced approach you also say like a scoop of haagen vanilla yeah with many of these things is is perfectly called for (laughs) yeah yeah who do you envision as sort of your audience for this book because it's not it's not a book that um is highly technical so you know home bakers easily i think could approach most if not all of these recipes without much formal training Yeah. yeah the goal was definitely for anyone to be able to uh make these recipes and, you know, read them and have it all make sense and accessibility to the ingredients. Um, so I say I did all the hard work Mm -hmm. and, and the recipe as, as complicated as it all might sound, the recipes read like any other conventional recipe. Some of them, you might have to look a little further for the 
ingredients, but I tell you where to find them. And any ingredient that was really hard to find, I, I just chose not to use it because there was no point. The readers I envisioned were like people who want to make birthday cake for their kid or Mm -hmm. which is actually one of the first recipes that I made was for my nephew's first birthday Uh six years ago. Um, I I think there are a lot of people who are curious about trying new, just things. Right. I think it's a great book for that. We're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask other cookbooks that have been meaningful to you. I mean, we've mentioned Harold McGee a couple of times. We've mentioned Rose Levy Berenbaum. We mentioned the Flavor Bible. You also name a bunch of authors and the acknowledgments, but I'm just curious if you can share for listeners, if there are books that either you just love or that were really important to you as references when you were, you know, recipe testing and building these recipes for your book. So some of my, the ones that I always had nearby were, Brave Tart by Stella Parks. Yeah. Um, Nordic Baking. Yeah. By Magnus, Magnus yeah. Nelson. It's a good one. Yeah. That's an, uh, I love like a big tome. Yeah. With, right. you know, hundreds of recipes in it. Uh, Nick Malgeri's pastry book mm-hmm. is great for all the, you know, kind of like pastry school basics. Um, Amy Chaplin's books. Yeah. So, um, yeah, here's a great. But there's a there's a French um, pastry chef, uh, Benoit Castel, who has a great little book that I referred to a lot. Those are great. I think those are those are some great books. Um, some of whom we've been happy to have on the show previously. Um, what do you think makes a great baking cookbook? You know, you named some some really great ones, but what do you look for if you pick up a, a baking book? I mean, I want it to either be something new, something that's new to me, mm-hmm. uh, like Flavor Flowers was, mm-hmm. or I want it to be like a big authoritative, like the book about with the best recipes from XYZ. Yeah. Like Stella Parks' books, like right. the best collection of American desserts. Right. Rose Levy Baronbaum's Cake Bible is right. like the book that you look to for cakes. Yeah. yeah. And then like uh, kind of authorities, like the Magnus Nelson book. Sure. Yeah. So we always end with a little game. So I thought today we would try um, this card I have here that has different um, fruits on it. So there's about 30 fruits on here. Um, a couple of vegetables, but this this is mostly fruits. Um, 31 through 60. So I'm going to let you pick a number, and that will correlate to a fruit I have on my card here, and then tell us how you might turn that into um, a recipe that would fit into good and sweet. How does that sound? Okay. Okay. So um, any number between 31 and 60. 42. 42 is the Bartlett pear. Okay. So we have a, a big thing of Bartlett pears. What, what inspiration do you find there? I'm going to, well, can I... Can I use them for recipes that I've already written? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll make uh, my pistachio cake. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll make the pear and vanilla bean flan patissier, which is a custard tart that I love and has pears as part of the custard. Um, I like a I like a 
pear crisp or pear crumble. Mm, sure. I like pear butter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Do you want to pick another one? This sure. is fun. Another um, number, 31 to 60. Uh, 58. 58 is the mango. Well, we know what you do with the mango, but what yeah. else might you do with the mango? <laughs> yeah, so we know I'd make the mango custard. Yeah. Um, I, I like having mango puree, just, you know, mm-hmm. like a fresh mango puree to put on yogurt or whatever. Sure. I'd make a mango sorbet. Mm-hmm. I'd make, I've actually never made a mango lassi, so okay. I'd go ahead and try to make one. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you one more. Um, 46 is a kumquat, which is one of my favorite okay. fruits. I actually love kumquats also. Yeah. What would you do with kumquats? Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing that comes in to mind is I want to make a... Uh, am I allowed to make a savory dish? Yeah, sure. I want, <laughs> I want duck with yeah. uh, kumquats. Yes, delicious pairing. Like, yeah. So just to make it easy, I'll get a duck confit uh-huh. like, and make a salad with kumquats sure. on it. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Okay, one more. Last one. Pick a number. 48. 48 is the ugly fruit. No, the ugly, ugly fruit. fruit. Okay, pick another number. <laughs> 41. 41 is a Granny Smith apple. Okay. Lots of things you can do with that. Yeah. So if I, if I have a ton of them, I guess what I'll do is make some dried apple chips. Okay. Like bake a ton of them just so that I have them in the pantry because I use a lot of them in these recipes. Sure. Um, I use them from everything to like the filling of a pumpkin pie to I have an apple and almond cake i'm not like a big baked apple fan like a baked whole apple yeah like i don't love or even like an apple pie i don't love so i i I actually actually i so i don't have an apple pie in good and sweet but i have a an apple custard tart Mm -hmm. which is it's a custard that has applesauce as one of the elements in the, of the custard. Okay. And that I really like. Sure. I'm just, I'm just not into the texture of baked Yeah, apples. you like the flavor, but not yeah. the texture. I get that. I get that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine, Brian. This was so much fun. Of course. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. For just a few dollars a month, you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.